Hello, and welcome to Inside the Sound of Fear. The Vocal Memnon of Thebes. The twin statues depict Amenhotep III in a seated position, his hands resting on his knees and his gaze facing eastward towards the river. He is flanked by two shorter figures, his wife and mother. The side panels depict the Nile god Hopi. In 27 BC, a large earthquake reportedly shattered the northern colossus, collapsing it from the waist up and cracking the lower half. Following its rupture, the remaining lower half of this statue was then reputed to sing on various occasions, always within an hour or two of sunrise, usually right at dawn. The sound was most often reported in February or March. The description varied from sounding like a blow or the string of a lyre breaking, but it also was described as the striking of brass or whistling. In addition, the base of the statue is inscribed with about 90 surviving inscriptions of contemporary tourists reporting whether they had heard the sound or not. Scripto Inferior. Severus and Varro move through the tall grass, approaching the mortuary temple wall quietly, then flatten their backs against the cool mud brick, each man positioned on one side of the breach. It was long past midnight, and the waxing moon shone down upon them in a sky of black. Varro had been a warrior auxiliary for a time in his native Alexandria. That was before his father had gambled away the family fortune. Now he was merely Severus' bodyguard and slave. The last two weeks adventuring south along the Nile with Severus had been a bit like a campaign at sea. Varro had let his black beard come back in, peppered this time with a few silver-colored hairs. On their way south to Thebes, they had encountered and defeated a group of aggressive desert brigands at a palm-tree-dotted oasis, and a hungry crocodile near the riverbank. Varro's quick battle reflexes had made quick work of both. Now his combat skills were sharpened and ready for anything within the temple's walls that would dare challenge them. Severus was a Roman through and through, hailing from a great family, one of the first to settle in the hills of Rome herself, the noble Albini. Varro had never seen Severus stoop to anything dishonorable, even when it would have been convenient, although along with Severus' self-imposed code of conduct came great pride. Every single day, even when he and Varro had been camped in between the unremarkable white cities of the Egyptian desert, Severus would shave his face so he would arrive at every new destination clean-cut, like he had recently walked out of the Capitoline Baths. Taller and leaner than Varro, Severus, too, had been a soldier for a short time. Between adventures, he kept his body healthy and strong. Think of a great jungle cat stalking prey. Whenever Severus was focused on a mission, it consumed his mind completely, every movement directed toward completing his goal. Perspiration clung to Varro's forehead. Even now, at the time of Saturnalia, while the citizens of Rome reveled in her snow-frosted cobblestone streets and drank wine by the light of the same bright moon, it was hot 
and dry in Thebes. He craned the sinews of his neck and peered beyond the breach, reporting back to his master in a whisper, Nothing. Not a soul. Severus' response was a silent narrowing of his hawk-like features. Nothing, Varro repeated. The surge of energy a warrior gets before entering a dangerous place hummed in his blood, though he still had nerves calm enough for a dash of laconic humor. He turned up his thick, black brows. I swear. Severus was first to slip past the wall, overcloak flowing, and made his way across the vast temple courtyard that was open to the night sky, past the sacred pool, to the central colonnade. Varro followed in his footsteps. The cyclopean pillars of the colonnade supported a lofty roof that ten men standing on each other's shoulders would scarcely be able to reach. Varro marveled at them. It was like these buildings had been constructed for a race of giants. Intricate hieroglyphs and images of the Egyptian gods of old, jackal-headed men and lion-headed women, decorated the pillars from bottom to top. He now knew why the city was known as Thebes of the Hundred Gates. They were now roughly at the midpoint of the long mortuary temple. To the east lay one gate, the great stone entrance pylon, dark edges stretching up to the night sky even higher than the pillars. To the west, beyond the colonnade, a second gate, the inner courtyard, and, if the map Severus carried in his scroll case was accurate, shrines to three deities, Ta, Sekhmet, and Osiris. The sooner Severus can meet his contact and get this over with, the better, thought Varro. He didn't like creeping around sacred places where non-worshippers were forbidden to tread. This deep in the desert, a man could still hear songs that were echoes of empires that once were. And here, in this active temple, the old forms of worship were still lively. Severus untied the straps of his leather scroll case, carefully took out the old papyrus, and unrolled it between his hands under the moonlight for both to see. On the top half were written lines of hieroglyphs, the language of the old pharaohs. Below the writing was a floor plan of the mortuary temple, straight dark lines indicating walls and rows of circles indicating the mighty pillars of the colonnade were plain enough. When Varro had first laid eyes on the map, he imagined this mission would be a quick matter of getting in and out. He had never until now journeyed to Thebes, nor conceived of the massive size of its temples. This particular one stretched east to west for stadiums of distance. Now that Varro was here, he attempted to consider the distance to the shrine of Osiris on the western edge of the temple, and found he had trouble wrapping his mind around it. The map simplified things, showing the shrine adjacent to the next area, the atrium. Get the gold ready, Varro. My meeting with the high priest is for quick information. This will not be a long, friendly reunion. Varro unslung the bag, heavy with golden are, bright Roman coins, and showed it to his master. Severus looked satisfied and pointed toward the atrium. They pressed on, 
clinging to the mooncast shadows, Varro issuing a soft clinking from the coins and the metal rings that had been worked into his leather armor for protection. Severus wore no such protection, only his fine toga and overcloak. When Varro had asked why his master shunned armor, Severus simply stated that it was undignified for a Roman noble, especially while in the presence of an armed and armored bodyguard. Varro's first adventure with Severus had been in the cool, dry catacombs underneath the coastal city of Alexandria. Varro had taken only a short, bronze, gladius sword for their protection then, and that had been wise, for fighting in the catacombs had been an ugly, close-quarters affair, where short weapons offered no disadvantage. He carried that blade with him now, and also a great horn bow that had been a gift to his grandfather from a commanding general, a reward for service in brighter days. Even though Varro was now a slave, and by default Varro's son, Oba, a slave as well, Varro trusted that Severus would make good his promise to make Oba a freedman on his 18th birthday. This was Varro's payment for the unusual dangers they faced when he accompanied Severus on his adventures. So were Varro's thoughts on his dear son as they made their way to the next area. True, it was the middle of the night, though it was still strange they had not spotted a single temple priest. The atrium was another grand open-air courtyard. At first glance, tall, shadowed figures stood in formation in front of slender columns, dozens of them on all sides. Upon closer examination, the figures bore inhuman faces and were not flesh, but stone. At the far end of the courtyard, Varro spotted a partition in the columns, the entrance to their destination, the shrines. Varro's tall master moved ahead, every motion fluid, purposeful. The tripods, Severus whispered. Varro noted eight great iron tripods in the atrium spaced among the slender pillars. The two farthest from them crackled with orange fire. The other six were cold, a suspicious fact Varro had previously overlooked. He had thought only of the advantage the added darkness gave his master and himself as they moved through the temple unseen. The two men skirted the right side of the atrium, keeping to the pillared shadows, approaching the entrance to the shrines. Severus stopped. Varro squinted. Among the statuary, two men dressed as temple priests held spears, guarding the way to the shrines. The guards spoke with each other, though not in Coptic. Definitely not from Thebes. Who are they? Slowly, Varro and Severus approached. They were about twenty paces from the guards when a second pair emerged from the darkness of the temple. Two figures, both unarmed, a woman and a young man. Varro looked to Severus for direction. His master drew a thumb across his throat, the signal that Varro should kill the opposition. Varro unslung the great bow and in one quick motion drew a bronze arrowhead to his fist, held his breath, and released. It flew true to its mark, hitting the right guardsman in the neck. The victim let out a hideous gurgling sound, let the spear drop from his shocked hand and sank to his knees. 
His companion readied his spear and faced Varro's direction. Too late. Quick, Varro had already loosed a second arrow that punched through the man's middle, transfixing the liver. The second enemy went down. As the two slain guardsmen quieted their throes, the woman and young priest did not stare back in horror or fear. Rather, they stared into the darkness with angry, luminous eyes, easily picking out the hidden locations of Varro and Severus. In a heartbeat, the woman and man flowed out of their clothes like water, and running on all fours, charged Varro and Severus. They no longer wore human faces or bodies. Instead of bare skin, spotted fur sprouted and covered them, and instead of human expressions, their faces elongated into long snouts, lips drawn back to reveal mouths full of jagged teeth, the faces of hyenas. One monster crashed into Varro as he was knocking his next shaft, sending the warrior flying, his bow and arrows scattered among the pillars. The other leaped upon Severus. Varro had heard of beings like this. Nomadic tribesmen he met whispered the name with fear. Buddha. Desert-dwelling shape-changers. The ragged jaws snapped at Varro's throat, powerful fur-covered arms pinning him to the flagstones, although Varro managed to wedge his thick forearm, protected as it was by a leather bracer, into the fiend's open mouth. The Buddha chomped down on Varro's armored arm with great force, but the bracer held, and the bone did not break. The creature mounted Varro's chest, bringing the long, black claws of its powerful hind legs to bear on his stomach. With his free arm, Varro drew the bronze gladius, honed to a razor on either edge, and hacked repeatedly into the only part of the creature he could reach, one of the front limbs. The sharp blade did its work, chopping into the creature's flesh, sending up a spray of hot, salty blood. The Buddha howled in pain and drew back from Varro immediately, holding up its mangled, bleeding limb with a shocked look in its eyes that was disturbingly human. Varro seized his chance and lunged for his bow as the creature limped away. One arrow within arm's reach glinted at him in the moonlight. He knocked it and drew back the mighty bowstring, aiming toward the other monster that worried his master. He had not been fast enough. Severus, the man Varro was charged to protect, lay motionless and bloody upon the stone floor. The beast on him had its head raised, ears alert to the sound of its wailing companion. It bared its bloody teeth, fixed its gaze on Varro, and charged. Varro let the arrow fly, and his aim was true. The arrow point entered the bestial face through one of its eyes. The creature let out a yelp and stumbled forward, crashing into the ground at Varro's feet. Varro flew to Severus' side, knelt down and tried to revive him. Severus moaned and drew breath. He lived. All was not lost. Varro would not have to sneak back into Alexandria undetected, collect his son and escape with him back to the unforgiving desert or perhaps across the sea to far-off Achaea where he and Oba would live the miserable life of fugitives from the Empire for their remaining days. Severus' leg had been clawed and his shoulder savaged. The creature's teeth had ripped through clothing, flesh, and muscle. 
Blood seeped from the wounds. Wary that more enemies could be hiding nearby, Varro quickly poured out and separated the medical supplies from the magical herbs in Severus' pack, identifying them as his master had taught. They looked similar in the cold moonlight. Though anticipating he would be working at night, Severus had wisely placed his ingredients in different shaped bottles. Molly leaf aided healing and promoted rigor. Henbane aided healing and promoted sleepiness. They needed to be alert and have their wits about them to get out of this place, so Varro opted for the molly. After numbing the wounds with his patient lying upon the cold flagstones, Varro found amongst his medical supplies a long bronze needle and black thread. He used them to sew up his master like he was repairing a ripped toga. Severus winced and groaned when the needle pierced his flesh, though he bore the surgery like a soldier. With the bloody stitches at last tied off, Varro sat and put his back against one of the slender pillars, fresh perspiration beading his brow, and puzzled out his next move. They rested there, Varro standing vigilant over his master until the sky brightened to a deep, iridescent blue in anticipation of the coming dawn. Not a single enemy appeared, including the wounded Buddha. Neither was there a sign of the temple priests who should have been there. All he could hear were the soft crackles of the two lit iron tripods and the sounds of nocturnal insects chirping and humming incomprehensible code back and forth to one another from the temple's dark recesses. Varro became increasingly bothered by his isolation in this ancient alien place, and busied himself searching the next area, never far from his resting master, ready to fly back to defend him should the enemy reappear. A central room led to three separate shrines in the inner temple area, each one decorated with beautiful intricate carvings and statues of the patron deity to whom it was dedicated. One shrine was for the lion-headed goddess Sekhmet, the next for the jackal-faced god Osiris, Egyptian lord of the afterlife, the last for Ta, blank-eyed male creation god, patron of architects and builders. It was in that last shrine that Varro made a grisly discovery. The temple priests and priestesses, all of them seemingly, stashed here torn, and stabbed bodies unceremoniously stacked upon one another. Those four false priests must have overcome and butchered the entire staff, including most likely Severus' contact. Why? thought Varro. No matter. When Severus recovers, we'll be going home. I'll live to see my son again. Hopefully, I'll live long enough to see Oba Friedman, the honor to my family name restored. He returned to Severus' side. At first, he was thrilled to see his master sitting upright. Then his hopes of an end to the dangerous mission were dashed. Severus stood up straight, and a gleam of silver moonlight glinted upon another empty bottle in one of his hands. Varro recognized the bottle's shape. The herbal mixture of spiced wine that had been within mingled with the ground petals from the night-blooming Uriel they had harvested on the banks of the Nile the evening previous, was starting to work upon his master. 
Varro became concerned when he noticed that his master's eyes were unfocused, pupils exceedingly large. Master, no, you mustn't. Severus unrolled the scroll map once again and gazed upon it in the moonlight. Yes, Faro, the solution works quickly. My friend in the Fraternitas Arcana told it true. The potion has worked its magic and given me an open doorway into which I may peer. The doorway of time itself. Faro stood at his master's side and peered down at the papyrus. To him, the hieroglyphs and temple map seemed unchanged. It was common for scrolls to have scripto-inferior or underwriting, with the older ink painstakingly scrubbed away so the expensive papyrus or vellum could be reused. Perhaps there was the hint of older writing there. Could his master really see into the scroll's past? Or was it an illusion created by the flower's essence? Ah, ah, said Severus, I could see it. The well, Varro, the sacred well itself, is the entrance. Come with me at once. The potion's effect fades, and we have work to do. They doubled back, moving past the colonnade to the courtyard at the temple entrance where they had entered through the breach in the wall. Varro didn't like the thought of his master continuing the mission in his recently recovered state. Master, your wounds, he said. Severus disengaged his working intellect from the task at hand for a moment to focus on Varro. Never mind that. You stitch me up well enough, my friend. It will take more than a desert beast's attack to sway us from our duty. And if it returns? Buddha are not driven off easily. However, if they're wounded badly enough, they concede. It won't return, at least not without friends. That's what I'm afraid of, said Varro. Then a most unearthly sound came from outside the temple. Both men stood frozen in place, listening. The low, unflagging wail that made the hairs on the backs of their necks stand on end was not quite human, nor metallic, but some hideous combination that suggested a choir of restless dead. Varro and Severus looked at each other, then slowly approached the huge open stone gate at the temple entrance. Outside were two great seated guardian statues, and not a living creature in sight. The colossi were each originally five men high. One had been damaged by a templar, or perhaps invaders, and was sheared off at the waist. The broken statue itself was doing the howling. Again, the men wordlessly glanced at each other. Each knew the other had heard it. Regardless, Severus said in his deep, commanding voice, it is of the utmost importance, danger or no, that we gain what we came here to retrieve. We? Master, you're wounded, said Varro. You need not keep reminding me. In any case, be not concerned. You'll be going first. Severus turned and strode over to the sacred well near the colonnade, and Varro followed. Here, Varro imagined, was where the priests had once drawn fresh water, blessed it, and distributed it to the people of Thebes. These temples had long since passed their heyday, and apparently 
the well had been dry for some time. From his pack, Severus produced a coil of hempen rope attached to a portable iron grapnel. He secured it to the well's edge and let the rope uncoil soundlessly into the darkness below. Well, said Severus. Well? Well, in you go. Varro grimaced, checked his person to make sure his equipment was secured, then tested the strength of the grapnel. After being certain it could support his weight, he positioned himself over the circular darkness and edged his way down, holding the rope, sandals pressed against the rough-hewn stone of the well's interior. There is a certain fear of the unknown that can grip a soldier when he knows the enemy is near, yet remains unseen. This was the sensation that gathered in Varro like storm clouds as he descended into the Stygian blackness, knowing that murderous creature was out there somewhere, and unknown horrors lurking in the chambers below. Varro repelled deeper, and again the hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. His stomach growled, muscles tense, body coiled like a cobra. He cast wary glances all around, ready to fight or fly at a moment's notice. He descended further. The air grew moist and cool. A sharp smell, like rotting vegetation, reached his nostrils. He could now make out the faintest illumination. The walls themselves, or rather, the fungus growing upon them, emanated it. He cleared the stone shaft and dangled in the darkness, gauging in his mind that he was in the well's water-collecting cistern, now dry, or else some great chasm. Finally, he believed he could see the ground. Without giving it too much thought, he let go of the rope, dropped, expecting the solid shock of stones on the soles of his feet, and landed in a pile of sand. It was musty down here, like the hold of an old merchant ship. However, no water in sight. He struck flint and steel, lit his clay oil lamp, and explored the edges of the chasm. The room was at an intersection of sorts. Five tunnel entrances, two side by side, the other three spaced evenly apart, led away. He lifted his head and called up to Severus. It's a cavern! Five tunnels! I'm coming down! Severus called back. Varro winced the thought of his master using his wounded shoulder to rappel down, though he knew better than to bring up his master's wounds in conversation again, or debate Severus on a different course of action once the Roman had made up his mind. Severus took longer descending the rope. Eventually, his lean figure appeared in the dim lamplight. That you, Varro? He chuckled. Son of a whore, thought Varro. He jokes at a time like this. Severus held on to the end of the rope with his arm connected to his unhurt shoulder and let himself drop into the soft sand. Varro ran to his side. Are you all right? Severus stood and brushed sand off his toga. Of course. There are five passages leading that one, Severus interrupted, finger pointing confidently ahead. All right, that one, 
Barrow said. Why that one? The map in the scripto-inferior of the scroll was clear. The tunnels down here are arranged like an ankh, with the looped head pointing east toward the Nile. That one. They moved forward, shoulder to shoulder, Barrow with lamp in one hand, drawn sword in the other. The lamp's glow illuminated more marvelous carvings, partially concealed by fungus that had crept up the walls, like the depictions in stone were being swallowed up by the dark plant life of the Nile itself. In Varro's peripheral vision, the fungus seemed alive, creeping up the sides of the tunnel, albeit slowly. When he looked at the suspicious growth directly, though, he could find no evidence that it was moving. Nothing, he said to a question Severus had not asked. Severus looked at Varro and raised his brows. The carved scenes depicted the Egyptian gods shepherding worshippers through the afterlife. The Twelve Hours of Night legend. The representations showed the gods steering the great spirit barges that carried human souls into a glorious eternity. The passage curved to the right, the first half of the loop. By the sixth pictogram, they must have been at the apex of the head of the ankh-shaped tunnel. Here, they discovered yet another tunnel leading further east, away from the Ankh's loop. The lamp illuminated a few stone steps that led down to a cavern with a pool of still, black water. They carefully navigated the slimy steps and stood at the pool's shore, Varro shining the lamp all around them, trying to gauge the rough chamber's dimensions. There was an exquisite statue of a great snake coiled about the circumference of the floor, partially submerged. The stone head, large as a man's torso, rested atop its coils, its eyes portrayed in slumber. Varro couldn't help feeling an instinctual dread at coming face to face with the statue, anticipating that at any second it would spring to life and swallow him whole. He pulled the tiny silver crucifix he wore about his neck out from under his armor and held it tightly in his hand. Severus noted Varro's actions and said, You can clutch at the teachings of Jesus all night long, but you're still going into that pool, like it or not. Varro grunted and removed his cloak, armor, and sandals, everything except the simple leather cord and crucifix around his neck. He unsheathed the short dagger he kept in his pack and placed the blade between clenched teeth, taste of fine bronze bitter in his mouth, then stepped over the serpent's stone coils, wading into the cold water. Severus took hold of the lamp and held it close to the water's edge. All he could see was the naked figure of Varro and a wavering reflection of the lamp's light on the pool's rippling surface. Varro sank deeper as he neared the center of the pool. Soon, only his head was visible. "'Can you feel the bottom with your feet?' asked Severus. "'No!' Varro said through gritted teeth. He floated out yet further, treading water, keeping his black beard above the pool's surface. In here, their voices carried a strange echo. "'Dive down and feel with your hands, then!' 
commanded Severus. You're searching for a smooth, golden idol, no longer than the length of your forearm. It will feel different than the rough rocks surrounding it. It's in the shape of a great sphinx, not as it now appears, the original, a crowned, winged lioness. Before Caffrey had his artisans chisel away the wings and change the face to resemble his own. Varro turned and dove down, feeling amongst the stones with his fingers and palms. Something sharp cut him. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing except the dark water all around him. His heart hammered. Then he paused for a moment to calm himself, chasing away the panic, and used his instincts to guide him back to the surface. His master was there, waiting at the shore. Anything? Severus asked impatiently. I cut my finger, said Varro, still holding the blade with clenched teeth. He held up his hurt index finger in the dim amber light. His master's response was a hard stare. Varro turned and dove down again into the cool dark of the pool. He felt the jagged bottom again, carefully investigating with fingertips for a time longer than he thought prudent. His great lungs burned. Then he felt something cold, smooth. He grasped it with one hand, pulled, and could not dislodge it. Then he positioned himself to get better leverage with both hands, gripped hard, and pulled again with all his strength. It came free. It was difficult swimming to the surface, though the object was compact, like his son after he had been recently born, it was heavy as a bundle of javelins. It belonged down at the bottom of the pool and wished to return there, dragging Varro and his damned duty down with it if need be. Varro kicked hard, struggling to bring it up. At last he reached the surface, gasping for air. Barely keeping his face above water, he brought the heavy object up to the dim light. It was the way Severus had described it, a golden-winged lioness wearing a pharaoh's crown. He waded to shore, stepped over the stone serpent's coils, and presented the prize to his master. Severus unclasped his overcloak and wrapped the wet golden object in it, never once letting it touch his flesh. This worried Varro. His own bare hands had been all over it. He pushed fearful thoughts out of his mind and busied himself putting on his armor and weapons. He and his master were vulnerable down here. Severus had his treasure. Now it was finally time to leave. Quickly. They left the pool chamber and continued on the looped path of the Ankh through the second half of the twelve hours of night, back to the room of intersections, where they had used the rope to lower themselves down. The rope was not visible, though it was a large cavern, and they yet stood at its edge. It must be past dawn by now, Varro thought, still no discernible light from above. Severus carried the clay lamp, slowly approaching the room's center, both men using their free hands to feel in front of them for the rope, Eventually, Severus spotted it and gripped it. He gave the lamp to Varro and went up first, favoring his good shoulder until he reached the stone shaft of the well, then used his feet to steady himself against the edge and inched his way up. 
When Severus had hauled himself bodily out of the well, he called down to Varro, "'Looks like we have company, old friend!' From the tone of Severus, he didn't sound frightened, so Varro figured it couldn't be the Buddha. Then again, maybe it was, and Severus didn't know. They were shape-changers, after all. Varro extinguished the lamp, gripped the rope, and climbed up fast. When he approached the surface level of the temple, he could finally see the dim, rosy light of dawn. Varro lifted his head out of the well. The day's new sun was peeking in past the colonnade through the temple entrance, bright in his eyes. Severus stood to his right, facing a group of tall, dark-skinned, white-overcloaked warriors. Golden armor gleamed from under the folds of the cloaks. One warrior was a beautiful woman, with round eyes and a stoic, imperious look about her, not unlike the noble bearing of Severus. She wore a golden breastplate, and underneath the sleeves, Varro could see hints of golden bracers upon her lean arms. Next to her was a young man who bore a wolfish look. He had golden bracers upon his forearms also, and leather armor with golden rings worked into the material for added protection. His black hair was long and worn back, in the Cushite style, like the woman's. On either side of them were two pairs of armored soldiers, also Cushites from the look of them. Three of the soldiers were broad-chested young men, and one was a shapely woman, the Buddha who had fought them and escaped in human form. Her hand was bandaged in linen, pinkish bloodstains seeping through. She leveled an accusatory stare at Varro when he climbed out of the well. Severus stood with palms outstretched. So, he wants to try talking his way out of this. Good, thought Varro. Perhaps the Saturnalia will favor this tactic. For all Roman citizens, this time of year heralded a period of revelry and reversal, destruction of the natural order, though exactly what kind of destruction Varro dared not ponder while he and Severus were so close to mortal danger. Severus could be silver-tongued when he wished, though Varro wondered if they, and this warlike group from Cush, even spoke a common language. He had heard Cushite women were trained to fight like the men, and he had no wish to try fighting six warriors at once. One of the Cushite men said in Latin, You are in the presence of Queen Tekashta of Meroe, fools. Lay down your weapons. Severus did so, then Varro. The queen addressed Severus, also in Latin. I recognize you, Roman. And I you, Queen Tekashta, though I am surprised. I thought you only spoke Meroese. At that meeting in Syene with Governor Metellus, I believe that was what your translator indicated. I speak Latin when it suits me. Tell me, do you have it? Yes, Severus said without hesitating. I must warn you, though, it's dangerous. Indeed, said the queen, and that is why you must hand it over, now. Very well, agreed Severus. 
slowly lifting the wrapped idol from his pack, careful not to make any sudden movements that would startle the queen's ready warriors. You haven't, by any chance, come across the scepter of storms lately, have you? The queen narrowed her gaze at him. The scepter and idol make a most potent combination, Severus continued. Said to be able to call down the powers of Typhon and wake the Queen of Dread, a forgotten goddess of chaos. You wouldn't be thinking of using this fell power against the Empire, would you? I know that when Emperor Augustus took Egypt, Cush made its own attempt to seize newly conquered lands not far from here. That was two hundred years ago, said the Queen. Different Emperor, different Queen. Then you know not of the ritual? Go on, the queen glanced back at the Buddha woman whom Varro had wounded. The queen of dread is dreaming, not dead, Severus said. She once strode these lands. Her image, a crowned winged lioness, dominated the sculpture of the Egyptian people for a time before she was driven out by the relatively new religion of Amun. It's true that the Queen of Dread brought misery to the enemies of Egypt. The Mitanni, Aegeans, and Babylonians were all repelled, and your people, the people of Cush. However, the gifts of the goddess also brought pain, chaos, and civil war to the Egyptian people, so much so that the priests of Thebes, led by the pharaoh Khafre, chiseled away the image of her face, destroyed her hieroglyphs, and forbade her worship. The day she was hanged, the Queen of Dread's High Priestess, Akana, declared her sacred idol and scepter cursed, with the power to slay anyone who attempted to destroy them. So the cautious priests buried the two items far apart, with prayers they would never be reunited. Egypt and Cush have historically been bitter enemies. So, how better to keep these evil items apart than to keep one buried deep in the heart of each land? Now, Rome has come, and, uh, <clears throat> by the grace of her policies, united them. Of course, uh, one cannot simply wake a goddess of chaos and call down terrible power, even with both items on hand. There must also be a sacrifice. In this case, the spilling of royal blood. You are the queen, and I thought you should be aware of the danger. Per Cushite law, you would be head of state and commander-in-chief of your people, though you probably would not overburden yourself with the minutiae of religious matters. Your high priestess, however, said Severus, glancing over at the wounded woman, would. I know of you and your family, the Albini, said the queen. Since your family helped the foundation of the Roman Empire, you feel a sense of responsibility toward keeping these items separate? I thought myself in a position to help, so I'm trying, if you will allow me, great queen. Ha! said the queen. Severus, you can save your flattery for your soft Roman women. 
You want to help, all right. Help yourself to the gold in that statue. Gold that can be put to better use in my lands. If your desire is for gold, Queen Takasha, then gold you shall have. I carry with me twenty gold ore from the capital. For a start, they are yours. I can have a hundred more brought to you at your palace in Meroe by month's end. Severus motioned for Varro to give her the coins. Varro unslung the leather pouch. <clears throat> he thought, lugging this fortune all the way from Elephantine, only to hand it over to the Cushites. Then again, I suppose I should be grateful. With these coins, Severus may well be buying back our lives. One of the solid-looking warrior men reached out a huge hand and accepted the pouch, checked the weight, grinned, and offered it to his queen. She inspected it and looked pleased. The Buddha woman did not. Think of a water pot under a hot flame left too long until steam noisily bursts out of the top. Now her brazen voice rang out, My queen! Surely you do not mean to let these Roman thieves leave with their lives intact. I mean to, Neferet. My queen, the Buddha snarled. He killed your husband, my brother, Obiri. You always hated Obiri, Neferet. I am aware of this. Are you upset because your plans to spill his blood at the ritual Severus described were foiled? I am queen. My personal feelings come after the need of my people. Obiri's death saddens me, though what's done is done. At least we can foster a new diplomatic relationship with this influential Roman and his people. Shenka Jedifre sees her. Two big men grasped either arm of the Buddha woman and, holding her tightly, forced her to her knees. Why doesn't she transform into a monster? thought Varro. Neferet's eyes blazed up at the queen. Why do you do this? The queen cast a chilly glance at Neferet. I may be wrong, but I will have my curiosity sated. Tanu, take Neferet's bag and pour out the contents. A third warrior cut the leather pouch from Neferet while she ineffectually struggled in the grips of the two big men. A few desert supplies and a golden scepter inlaid with emeralds rolled out. The scepter of storms, said the queen. So you did have it. Neferet avoided her monarch's gaze and said nothing. Do you think me a fool, Neferet? That's why you planned your midnight incursion here with your two bodyguards. Once you acquired the idol, you wanted to perform the ritual, and your own brother, the king of Cush, would have been the sacrifice. No, the priestess said. It sounded more like a plea than a statement. Yes, the queen corrected. She drew a long bronze dagger, stepped to Neferet's kneeling form, and drove the blade into the priestess's heart. Neferet's eyes widened. She made a pitiful, sputtering sound, and then the light left her face. The men let go of her arms, letting the body fall limp to the flagstones. One of the warriors drew the knife out, wiped off the blood on the priestess's cloak with an expression of disgust. 
and reverently presented the blade, hilt first, back to the queen. The queen approached Severus, eye to eye with his height, and sheathed her dagger. I will expect those hundred gold coins delivered to me personally in Meroe by the month's end by you, Severus Meridius of the Albini. As you wish, Severus said. You may take the idol, the queen said. Take it to Alexandria, Rome, or anywhere you wish, provided it is far away from here. There is definitely something between these two, Varro thought. All the years he had been by Severus' side, he had been hoping his master would find a woman who kindled enough of a fire to distract him from his adventures. The desire was partially selfish, of course, for he did not share Severus' lust of questing after obscure, powerful remnants from ancient lands, though in truth he also thought it would be good for Severus to settle down. Many exotic women in their travels had made it known, sometimes with subtlety, sometimes not, that they were available for Severus's affections. He had always dismissed them. Now that Severus was responding favorably to this woman, this queen, it frightened Varro, for if it was true love with these two, could it not overwhelm and turn destructive like Antonius and Cleopatra? He wanted his master to be happy, though perhaps that was the one flaw of Severus. Because of his great ability, he always sought the things that would be most difficult to achieve. The queen gathered her men around her, two carrying the body of the priestess, and left the temple. Severus and Varro approached the main entrance moments after the queen and her group strode down past the colossi to the shore of the Nile and climbed into a waiting barge. Varro's shoulders sagged in relief. He turned to Severus and said, You have saved our lives. That haughty queen would have killed us had you not known how to convince her. Indeed, said Severus, and the priestess would no doubt have eventually found some way to perform the ritual and wake the Queen of Dread from her slumber. She's quite a woman. I noticed the way her men looked at her, said Varro. Roman men don't look upon their women with that kind of respect. It depends on the woman, Varro. Have you ever met my sister? Still, I agree. The ways of Kush are, and always will be, different from ours. However, to serve or partner with the right woman can be a most desirable position under the correct circumstances. They packed the wrapped idol and made their way back to Thebes, where they could hire a barge to take them to Elephantine, Alexandria, or whatever city would be their next destination. Varro knew Severus was a man of his word, and they would be back to this part of the Nile within a week or two with the Queen's gold. Who knows? Perhaps she would favor them with information that would inspire their next quest. Cush was a land with many trade connections, and Severus would always be keen to explore an adventurous lead that interested him or the Fraternitas Arcana, no matter how distant or exotic the location. Well, it sounds like those boys have themselves a sketchy little journey ahead. 
Yes, they do. Um, um, they've they've killed the Queen of Kush. They've killed the High Priestess of Kush. Yeah, and they have a um, idol. Indeed. Which is probably not going to bring them much good luck. No, I think that they're probably going to put it away in a museum somewhere. Hopefully. <laughs> do you think they're? Do you think they come from the Indiana Jones camp of like that should be in a museum? Yeah, exactly. They're going to give it to the Roman Marcus Brody. Um, yeah, I think that that uh, Severus is um, basically a good guy who is just trying to research or maybe keep locked away dangerous artifacts the way Indiana Jones would. Um, it's definitely, well, I'd say it's a little more inspired by Tomb Raider than Indiana Jones, but Tomb Raider was inspired okay. by Indiana Jones, so sure. Tomb Raider, um, yeah. And what, so specifically what about Tomb Raider? What would you say it's more related to Tomb Raider than um, Indiana Jones? Which which parts? Well, the, the Tomb Raiding. The Tomb Raider. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, Josh. The tomb raiding, dummy. I mean, is there more? It was. Is there more of a inspirational thing behind that? Then uh, no, know? no. I mean, yeah. It's it's not. I mean, the characters don't resemble Lara Croft or Indiana Jones at all. In fact, um, uh, what I ripped off for the character models were Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Like basically, ah, yeah, yes. Yeah, Severus is Holmes, and uh, Watson is just like the. It's he's he's us. Like Varo, Varo is. Um, uh, basically what we would be thinking if we were in that situation. Like, he's the protagonist. Like, he's the guy with the son that he wants to see freed, and he, you know, he through no fault of his own, his, parent, or his parents got into slavery, and so he's a slave. But um, he, if he sticks with this super brain, you know, Severus, he's, he's promised to free his son, at least. Um, and uh, who knows? And he's probably secretly having fun along the way, but he won't admit it to himself. You know, I never, I mean, it's a short story, so I couldn't get into his head that much. Um, okay. But that's that's the basic model of them. It's, uh, you know, Holmes and Watson. Would you say when you write a character and give them a kid or a significant other, there's a lot of intention behind that? Well, it's his motivation in right. this. So, yeah, I mean, basically... Um, if you're writing a work of fiction for entertainment, um, you if if you give a character a child, there has to be a reason for it. Like either it's one of their motivations or um, a reason they do something that's important to the story, where they normally wouldn't do that, um, or the child ends up being a character in the story later. Um, you know, but it, there's got to be a reason for it. I, I would like to think that there's a reason for every single thing that I give my characters in my work. So I like I, that. I try. I appreciate <laughs> that because I, I like that type of intent that it's not just to make you can, you know, think, okay, cool. He's a father and I'm a father. It's more like it's his motivation. It, it makes me think of, um, you know, something recently was like once upon a time in Hollywood. Mm. As soon as I saw the dog, <laughs> with Brad Pitt's character, I yeah. said, "This dog's gonna fuck shit up later. Right. This dog's gonna just eat someone's face off. Like it's gonna do something. Like you, right? Because it's a, it's Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I've never seen him put a dog in a movie yet. <laughs> and my mind went as soon as that dog. You see that dog on camera. I'm like, oh boy, what's gonna what's gonna go on here? And it's the wolf. <laughs> the, the the first clue is like the wolf's tooth 
I think it's called the the dog food is called wolf's yeah, tooth. Wolf's it's tooth. like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that should already tell you, like, this dog is wolf-like in yeah. some way. And then, of course, you know, Brad Pitt treats it like an equal. Yeah, it's, you know, it's He talks very, to it. And, and, and the dog is extremely obedient. <laughs> right. So it's like, uh, you know, there's a strong bond here with these two. Yeah. So that's an interesting, totally different perspective. You know, it's not his motivation. It's more like they're partners in crime. Like, yeah. this is his, this, they got each other's back. Right. So I... I I, I appreciate that when writers use, like you're saying, if you put a car there, the car is there for a reason, you know, and it's like, that is, I guess I just, the, the writer I always come connect with the most for my time and just at my age is, is Quentin Tarantino because of like, he, there'll even be a dialogue about it. Not only do you see it in the frame, but like someone's going to say every single detail about that thing probably. Right. Yeah, his characters are extremely knowledgeable about a very limited scope of life, but they are experts in Mm -hmm. whatever that is. Uh, You come across that a lot. And that's, of course, because Tarantino is an expert in a lot of nerdy stuff because (laughs) he's super smart and he's, you know, fascinated by all those things. Yeah, it's it's like where I always think a lot of your stories remind me of video games because you are really specific with your characters as well. And it's almost like you're giving them attributes like a video game character, like you have attributes and you know or, or skills and strengths and weak and then you have weaknesses you know yeah. like and um it's like if you were playing a you know like a moba game or a game where people have to um, pick their characters based on strategy because the characters in the game themselves actually have a unique purpose they're not just mm-hmm. all created equal they're all like you know you have a tank you have a melee you have right you know it's an archetype yeah 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 and you have the the, the sniper Right. You've got the scout. Right. You know, and, and you've kind of laid that foundation in this story, too. Yeah, I, I thought, um, I, I mean, I, I uh, this was written, this was one of the first things I wrote. It was like maybe the second or third story I ever wrote. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, uh, I, I thought that um, at that time I was experimenting with different genres and different, um, I actually, I, you know, I met with... Um, uh, Fight Club, uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I was just like, I was, I really like his work. And, um, I, I just asked him, I'm like, as a starting writer, like what, what do you recommend for me? Like to get started on the right foot. And he was like two things. He's like, get a peer group to review your work and review their work. So you can, you know, make your material better. And the other thing was try to write as many genres as you can because once you write a hit, that's it. Like, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to be writing for the rest of your life. So I tried to write as many things that I would be excited to write endless iterations of. So this is clearly meant as a first episode in these guys' um, history. Um, and oh, yeah. there could be many others. I mean, I could write a whole short story collection on them if I wanted to. But Well, yeah, you leave us on a major cliffhanger with them i mean it feels like the story almost just got started yeah yeah. like you could you could almost take that story and make it down to a five minute scene in a movie and that's the last thing they just got done doing they're like like james bond move where it's like you're the 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 story opens with them wrapping up their last mission and they're going to go on the next one right yeah yeah i guess indiana you know a lot of directors do that yeah you know especially with like an adventure type narrative is like you show that these characters were already doing something pretty exciting and yep you drop them into the middle of the action that's uh in media res yeah. um 
It's, uh, I like it. Appropriately enough, a Latin term. Say it again. Uh, in media res, it means in like in res. in the middle of action. Got it. Yeah, I mean, all the best. You know, sit here and name them all, but I mean, all the best directors have done it. Yeah, George, yeah. George Lucas has done it. Yep. Star Wars. I like it. Yeah, and it just assumes it. It doesn't assume that they need to explain everything to you at the beginning. Although they do have that crawl at the beginning, which uh, in Star Wars, which <laughs> if you are, if it's to be, to be believed, the story was Brian De Palma is the one who made that happen because originally Lucas sat down his his director buddies, like you know, uh, I think it was De Palma. Coppola and Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. He sat them I've down. I've heard about this conversation. What a hell of a room to be a fly on the wall oh, in, too. I know. What a great group. Um, but uh, uh, showed them Star Wars, and uh, everybody was like, oh, yeah, George was great, great. And De Palma was the one who was like, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Like, you know, <laughs> you've got to have something at the beginning to explain what gets them to this point. And that's when Lucas, uh, apparently Lucas got really flustered, um, but eventually came down to earth, so to speak, and and opted for the crawl that you know the the the, the uh, that follows the credits in Star Wars. So yeah, wow, oh, that's where that came. Yeah, I I've heard that story told other ways before, but um, <laughs> I, that, I like that because I'm a big De Palma fan. So I also was thinking that all of those people should never fly on the fly on the same day. Right, <laughs> that's <You know>? true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. It's got a, you know, it's definitely got an adventure theme to it. So you want to talk about that? Like, I yeah, know there's more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I grew up, um, I mean, my, I think my gateway drug into pulp fiction was probably H.P. Lovecraft. But um, when you're, and you, to clarify, too, when you say pulp fiction, you're talking about the actual printed pulp fiction, not the yes, movie. Not the movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I know. We were just talking that. about Tarantino. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I'm talking about actual pulp fiction, like pulp adventure stories that uh, were really popular in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, the, um, the, the stories that I really loved most that are sort of not horror, that are more adventure uh, oriented were Robert E. Howard's stories. He he wrote Conan the Barbarian and a bunch of other characters too. Um, and uh, man, um, he is just there is something about the way that guy writes that is incredible. It's like a shorthand almost because um, so much happens in in every story, but he describes the right things in just the right amount of time. He's a very talented self made writer. Um, but, um, the problem with a lot of Howard's work, not all of it, but a lot of it, and a lot of the other writers around that time is that there's a lot of racism, sexism, things that today you read them and you're like, uh, I wish that wasn't there, you know? Um, but that's really what my mission statement for this story was. Like I wanted to write something for modern audiences that had the same passion that uh, Robert E. Howard had in a similar subject. So, you know, it's two white guys in Egypt trying to steal an Egyptian artifact, but um, they are evolved socially. Um, you know, Severus uh, has a very um, practical approach to dealing with women, um, whereas a lot of Roman men at the time actually didn't, um, you know, uh, because the society let them get away with it. Uh, but, um, but I think, uh, and also having black characters in a powerful role, I, like that's part of it too. 
hard to find that in literature from the 1920s. But uh, I think the time has come for stuff like that, and and uh, it got me a book deal on on this thing. So nice. So you, yeah. I mean, you you woke you wrote a woke version of a kind of like your pulp fiction inspiration. Exactly. So tell me about the kind of early stages of this this story like where, where, where did you you obviously probably try to shop this around yeah um yeah i i originally um shopped it to an anthology uh that did not opt to buy it um and i thought it, I, I wrote it for that anthology well, um them. yeah <laughs> that's why i'm not going <laughs> to talk about it because <laughs> i don't want to inadvertently sell their copies yeah um but um nah, whatever i mean you know I, just as an aside, um, I I have definitely learned that um, a rejection when you're submitting fiction is totally not personal. It, it's not about how good the writing is, although obviously if the writing's bad, they're going to reject it. <laughs> but even if the writing's good, they could reject it. Um, the, even if the editor loves what you wrote, they could still reject it because um, they may already have a story that's like that, or um, they may not want a, that type of story. Maybe they published tons of that type of story last quarter. And, you know, it's, it's always up to the, whatever the publisher needs at that moment. Like, that's the only, that's the thing. And they never tell you what it is. So it's just luck that whether you're yeah. going to get the right uh, submission into what they need. But it's always about what's best for the project, not what the editor wants, not what the writer wants, but what's the best fit. Um, yeah. So... Talking about, you know, what's best for the project, um, you know, I would assume this type of story, this isn't a jab at your story, but, you know, it's like, it's been done before, right? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> d- did you have problems with that, trying to get it? Because because this is like such a common genre, and, you know, you were saying it, it, it is geared towards the pulp type. Yeah, I, the, interesting you should bring that up, because, yeah, uh, I totally did. I, I submitted this uh, two or three times, I think, before it got accepted, and um, the first two or three times, you know, whenever you submit a work of fiction, you write an intro letter or cover letter to accompany it, where you kind of explain the story to whoever is about to read it. Um, and you talk about your previous credits and, you know, all that kind of stuff, too. But um, in that intro letter, um, I just explained what the story was about. It's like two Romans raiding a temple in Egypt. Um, and I think that may be why it got rejected um, so universally. And I couldn't understand because I was certain it was the best thing that I had ever written. I, I didn't understand why people weren't taking this. But then I changed the... I didn't change anything about the story, but I changed the intro letter to mention all the things we just talked about, that um, it's, uh, you know, a story that's been modernized. It, it sort of corrects some of the problems that um, that modern readers find in uh, Robert Howard and, and uh, those kind of writers. Cool. Uh, and the first time I changed the cover letter, it immediately got accepted. <laughs> it's almost uh, kind of a nice little testament to, like, job hunting in general <laughs> yes <laughs> if yeah. you write a good conv- a convincing cover letter can uh, kind of seal the deal indeed um, connects y- the dots yeah I mean 
a lot of times with resumes and cover letters, uh, including submission letters for writing, um, you want to be as concise and as brief as possible so that you're not wasting the editor's time. But in this case, I think it was worth it to just spend a few more words to explain what I'd done rather than just tell them what the story was about um, because uh, that, that got me the deal. So That's awesome. Well, Victor, thank you so much for reading that today. Up next, we'll have... Perros Fieles. Ah, that's what I wanted you to say. It sounds so cooler. Um, all right, folks. Thank you for joining us today. And we'll be back next time. Thanks, Josh. Talk to you later. Thank you.